Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. If you are one of the lucky few who get to survive this, you have a responsibility to yourself, to your staff, to your industry, to build it back in a way that's not just equitable, but sustainable. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The only way we're going to get through this is to get through it together. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out. You can book a free call with me by going to joshcopel.com forward slash chat. Also, be sure to check out the Full Comp Restart Guide, packed with valuable resources and strategies from Yelp, Cornell University, and Oyster Sunday. Go to joshcopel.com forward slash resources for your free download. Didn't write that down? Don't worry, there are links to both in the show notes. Twice a week, I show you the world I see. It's the world I want to live in. It's filled with big names, big stories, and bright futures. But there's something to be said for small stories. The independent restaurateur fighting the good fight in a forgotten neighborhood. There's hope and inspiration there as well. Today, we chat with Andrea Abdallah, owner of Barcito in downtown Los Angeles. Andrea is proof that we can change the whole industry simply by changing the way we do business. Her story of struggle and survival epitomizes the reasons why I've dedicated my life to serving those that serve the world. We begin her story with the birth of Barcito. 26-year-old, first-time restaurant owner. And, you know, I think I went in with a very clear vision of sort of being this neighborhood gastropub, kind of Argentine-inspired, but that wasn't really going to drive the concept necessarily. And really quickly, people just wanted us to be this like full-service Argentine restaurant. And I think I kind of gave into that a little bit more than maybe I should have. We also, about seven or eight months in, decided to eliminate tipping, kind of a la Danny Meyer. Um, I had worked for him in New York for several years and just had always had really um, strong opinions and problems with the inequity in restaurants, especially between the front of house and the back of house, and um, just just kind of the, the wage inequity there. And at the time, it felt like the only real sustainable solution in kind of bridging that gap. Um, and, you know, we eliminated tipping basically in April of 2016. And it was really tough. There were things about it that were great, I think culturally and for the restaurant and for the staff, just like super low turnover, the, the that kind of inequality gap continued to exist, but it was not nearly as bad as it could have been or would have been, especially as minimum wage kind of continued to go up. But value perception was just really challenging and trying to um, help folks kind of understand 
because we, you know, it, it wasn't a service charge model. It was, it was a hospitality included, no tipping model. And so our prices went up by about 22%. And, you know, regardless of all of the marketing and all of the visual aid and things that we did to sort of drive this point home, people just look at your menu prices and that's what they judge you on. And so, you know, items that went up by $3, their perception just like totally tanked. And so we eventually kind of reimagined the restaurant again and tried to go back to more of a bare bones kind of format. Um, We eventually did get rid of the no tipping, but that was also because the laws changed. And, you know, when we first instituted no tipping, you are not allowed to share tips with the back of house, which is a big part of of that inequity and why it existed Mm -hmm. in the first place. And then eventually that law changed. And once that law changed, I started to kind of do the math and realized that if we shared tips with both front of house and back of house, it would help kind of answer a lot of these questions that I had and resolve a lot of the problems that I thought were inherent in just the compensation models in our industry. And basically all of our employees got a raise after that, um, mm-hmm. which was also a pretty incredible benefit. We've done lots of weird stuff over the years, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I want to unpack the gratuity thing. So I, I never went with the hospitality included model and not because I don't believe in it, but because like I was afraid of my patrons and I was a, afraid that, that my staff would revolt. Um, but I, I've always been an advocate that, that gratuity is, forgetting front of house and back of house, in general, it's just not hospitable. And it's it's incredibly inequitable in the way that it's doled out. Like, you tip a cab driver and you tip a valet, but you don't tip other people that, that do comparable services, right? You, you know, you tip you tip the sky cap that loads your bags onto a conveyor belt, but you don't tip the 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 stewardess that gives you your your drinks and food. It's it's always been super random and nondescript in there. There's so many times that I found myself in a place where I didn't know what to do. And, and whatever my reaction was, was always generous. And it was always motivated by guilt and not generosity. It doesn't feel good to tip. Even if you think it does, I, I don't think that that's, that's the case. And so even though a couple of your issues might have been solved by being able to share the gratuity, I guess to... to end my rant and get back to a point and to a pointed question like is is there a solution to this that is fair that is equitable and and if so does it really come down to the infrastructure of the solution or is it more about storytelling and marketing i think that there are multiple prongs to it and i think it depends a little bit on on where you live and where you operate your restaurant um you know i think tipping as a model is tremendously flawed just because you are, as an employer, asking your customers and your guests to pay your employees, which is just horrifyingly backwards on so many levels and is actually a legacy of slavery and the fact that post-emancipation, no one wanted to pay their employees, so they decided to implement tipping so that they didn't have to actually pay their employees. And that $0 base wage um, has now risen to $2.13 an hour across the United States and in most of the states here in the U.S. But in California, as you know, it's, it's, it's a much higher wage. It's, it's kind of what we call one fair wage, where there isn't a sub-minimum, wage t- a sub-minimum tipped wage 
and then a sort of full wage. There is just one fair wage, regardless of whether you're a tipped employee or not. And I do think that that changes the dynamic a little bit. At the very least, we're not talking about uh, employees who are actually not able to feed their families because they weren't tipped on a certain night or because the employer chose not to uh, sort of fill that delta between what the subminimum wage is and what the full wage is. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think I think the first answer to your question is, is yes, it is about ensuring that everyone is getting paid a livable base wage, uh, regardless of whether tips are in the equation or not. And then I think moving forward, this is one of the challenges and one of the things that I think our industry has to kind of reckon with is whether or not we will accept this kind of culture of of accepting tips um, or if we would prefer to kind of mandate a service charge and, and have at least some sort of fixed kind of revenue stream that we can then sort of uh, distribute to our employees in a way that feels equitable and that ensures that everyone's taken care of and that that base wage of $15 an hour or whatever the living wage is in your region is actually much higher. Uh, and so <laughs> we have a long way to go to get well, there. Well, we do. This is not something that's going to happen before the pandemic is over. No, that's we're going to solve sure. it. We're going to solve it on this show today. That's what we're going to do. Cool. I'm with you, man. <laughs> I mean, so and here's here's my issue, just to unpack even further. I think a service charge is disingenuous. I think you just don't see it in, in any other industry. Um, like, when, why can't the price just be the price? Why do I have to add like a 3% charge so that I can give my people health care? Why can't I just charge you 3% more and say, this is what it is. You go to the gas station, right? Like you have a car. And when the price is higher on Tuesday than it was on Monday, you don't knock on the door. He's not giving you a, a, a 5% increase in price and then telling you why. It's the cost of doing business. And, and so it feels disingenuous that we have to make up reasons why our pricing needs to be adjusted. When, when what we, we, we work in commodities, pricing is variable. You know, and and so it would it would make sense in a new model in a brighter future that 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 key lime pie that we're selling that everybody loves so much that that when the cost of limes goes up, the cost of the pie goes up. Yeah, I mean, I'm 100 percent with you. I think there's there's a reason that when I eliminated tipping years ago, I I chose not to opt into the service charge model, even though it was pretty clear and the data showed that it was the more successful model because. Again, folks look at a menu price and they are going to compare your menu to the menu down the street, regardless of whether or not tipping is included or not, or if there's no tipping whatsoever. Uh, and so and so, I'm wholeheartedly with you on the idea that it should just be one price and guests can kind of determine whether or not that's something they're willing to swallow. Uh, and I know, you know, I listen to your show and kind of constantly pose this question about whether, uh, you know, we need to charge what it costs or whether we need to charge what guests are willing to pay. And I think that there's kind of a third, even maybe more important question, and it's why are we so disconnected with what the true cost of food is? Um, and I think there are so many things that we as restaurant owners need to do internally in our restaurants to to kind of address some of this. But I think if you look kind of more globally as an ecosystem in which we're working, 
there are so many issues. I think there's this issue of employers paying $2 and 13 cents an hour for their employees. I think the fact that agriculture is commodified and subsidized is super problematic. Uh, and I think if you think about the kind of folks who are running our grocery stores and it's people like Amazon who aren't paying taxes, there's a reason that people think that food should cost a certain amount and it's just wrong. It's just, not true. Right. Uh, and so I think, you know, eventually we do kind of need to organize as smaller independent restaurants, of which there are millions here in the United States, and that I think together would have, have tons of power uh, to have those conversations so that we're able to build the systems and the business models that will be sustainable and that will also take care of our, of our employees. Well, because, you know, what I think we're lacking is buy-in from the consumers. Uh, There was a Wall Street Journal article that posted recently, and it was saying that sales of McDonald's and Domino's Pizza and Taco Bell are through the roof. They've never been bigger and better. And I I posted it into this Facebook group, and this guy that I know that that actually interviewed me recently had responded and said, well, you know, the restaurateurs just need to be aware of what the general public wants. And if they pivot their menu to a bunch of $10 or less items, you know, they'll get a lot more traffic to which I responded. What about $5 menu items? I bet those, those would move really fast too. Huh? What about like $1 menu items? I bet those would fly off the shelves. You're 100% right. They, there, there is a disconnect. Now, does that come from, us doing a poor job of telling the story or pleading our case? Or is that the consumer is just uncaring at this point? I I think there's certainly a component of that. I think that there could be a better concerted effort in our industry to talk about those things and um, why we price things the way that we do and why with, you know, this pandemic, so many of us were forced to close, if not temporarily, permanently. But I, I do think at the end of the day, the true issues are systemic. And uh, we still have a responsibility to help shape that narrative so that I think our guests and the communities in which we are operating our businesses, we have that buy-in to then go after the system because each individual restaurant is not going to be able to do it on its own. Even if they were all aligned, uh, we still need our guests and our consumers who I think really value us and really care about us and don't want it to just be a bunch of fast food, $10 or less restaurants that (laughs) inhabit their neighborhoods. Um, And so I I think, you know, this is certainly uh, an interesting time uh, to be having those conversations and to kind of rally those troops a little bit and say, Hey, it's not just the restaurant industry that is broken. It is our entire food system and our entire kind of economic system. And we all need to make choices to impact the change that we want to see. Well, and, and what changes do you want to see within your restaurant and what, you know, to get out of this and, and end up stronger because of it? And then, you know, what, what conversations are you guys having? What, what problems are you tackling? Yeah, you know, I, I think... Everything about this pandemic has made me rethink our our business model. Um, and so we, amidst all the weird pivots that we have done throughout this this pandemic because we haven't we haven't closed a single day since since the shutdown. And uh, we we've done all kinds of things. We sort of did the grocery model for a little bit 
just because, especially in downtown, the supermarkets were a complete nightmare. And even when you did sort of wait in that one hour line, the shelves were empty anyways. Uh, and so we've certainly kind of pivoted just to sort of meet the immediate short-term needs of, of our guests and our, our neighborhood. But I think we've also taken a step back to really think about the kind of place that we want to be, not just now, but but post-pandemic, hopefully we survive this. We don't know. TBD, stay tuned. But this kind of walk-in, you know, we didn't even take reservations. So walk-in restaurant that on a night-to-night basis just completely fluctuated in volume. We were super dependent on the nearby Staples Center, super dependent on the nearby Convention Center. And none of those sales were really trackable. You know, if I spent money on advertising, like my ROI, I don't know. I don't have a clue. I'm not going to survey every single person who comes in the door. And so it forced us to really kind of rethink what what purpose we serve. And, you know, I think I was actually, I was part of this, this really cool conversation with the James Beard Foundation um, Institute for the Future, in which they kind of posed this question about assumptions that we make in our industry that could be flipped on their head. And so one of the assumptions that was was sort of posed was you are only busy during the hours of 12 and one o'clock and six and nine o'clock. And so every other hour of the day, you are bleeding money and you have to raise your prices during that 12 to one o'clock and six to nine o'clock hour to make up for the fact that you have a full staff, full rent, all of these things because you're bleeding money every other hour of the day that guests aren't hungry and aren't actively eating and drinking. And so I kind of started to think about all of these things. And so we really kind of made this big pivot to more of a bottle shop and more of a place that can be both enjoyed sort of in-house or at your own house. Partially with the idea that there's kind of this entire retail component um, in the form of sort of natural wine and craft beer that uh, is all at retail prices. You know, I think pretty early on in this pandemic, we figured out that we're not competing with other restaurants. We're competing with grocery stores and we're competing with the kind of local corner store. And how do we sort of continue to be part of that conversation and meet people where they are? Because I think no matter who you are, you're financially impacted by this somehow. And so um, kind of changing our pricing model around a bit. And we also are really focused on kind of launching this entire e-commerce kind of portion. Um, And I think what's really exciting about the e-commerce is not just you know, for our guests, the convenience and the ability to kind of quickly look at our menu and have pictures. And it's just kind of really rich and beautiful and engaging. But it's also this this ability to kind of track sales and track ROI and really understand where our guests come from um, in a way that we've never even thought about before. And, uh, you know, I, I know you've mentioned this before, but I think, you know, having these different kind of revenue streams and different models in place, not because I don't want to continue to be a restaurant, I desperately want to continue to be a restaurant, uh, but it's just not stable and it's not predictable. And if we can kind of introduce these other components to it, that will help us stabilize and ensure a paycheck for my employees and ensure that, you know, if something like this were to happen again, we're not also immediately just kind of like battening down the hatches and hoping and praying that that something changes. Um, I think that'll be a really big part of of everyone's strategy moving forward. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. 
Um, you did mention that you've you haven't closed a single day since this whole thing started, and there was there was a moment in time where the BLM movement uh, w- was moving through downtown Los Angeles, uh, and, and there was there were there was so much chaos associated in that moment that so many restaurateurs closed their restaurants, boarded up, battened down the hatches, and that wasn't that wasn't the position that you took. And so I want you to tell me what you did and I want you to tell me why you did it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think like a lot of the people that were marching in the streets, I was just so angry and so fed up. And I think, you know, a lot of this civil unrest has been this kind of perfect storm and this pandemic has just so exacerbated the inequities in our society in this way that just, we all knew, but it made it really stark. And, you know, that weekend in particular, I just, I was so mad. Garcetti, our mayor, had on Friday at noon announced in a press conference that restaurants could open by that evening without any guidance, without any regulation. And it was just the most clear and concise sort of message to the people of Los Angeles. Like he cares more about business and revenue than about human beings. And uh, George Floyd had been murdered the night before and on Saturday, a majority of, of these protests kind of broke out. The one in West Hollywood, which I actually attended, uh, was on Saturday. And a lot of the unrest really kind of heated up that weekend. And by Saturday evening, he had called a curfew. And it was just the most incredible metaphor to me about his complete failure as a mayor. And the fact that, you know, he tried to reopen restaurants, rush it, not even, he didn't even give restaurants a heads up that this was coming. And then by, you know, less than 24 hours later, he was imposing curfews and shutting down restaurants again. And, you know, I think for me, there's always this debate about incremental change versus burn it down, systemic change, build it better from the ground up. We can't fix a broken system. And that weekend in particular, I was very much in the burn it down camp and, um, you know, kind of felt like, hey, this is happening. I am in favor of it. And, you know, I mean, I'm also a tenant in a building. It is not my building. I wasn't going to put plywood up to protect a piece of property that's not actually mine. But, you know, I put out water for protesters and and kind of signage in my restaurant showing that I was very much uh, in support of this movement. Uh, eventually, actually, the, the property management company, because I'm part of a big condo complex, did end up putting up plywood. I mean, it was like a week late by the time they did it, which I thought was weird. But, uh, but then I also kind of asked the neighboring community to come out and post things and paint murals and sort of use it as a, a community bulletin board of sorts. But, you know, I think, I think a lot of it just came from this complete frustration and anger and how much our systems had failed us. And I just don't think it had ever been so clear or so stark to me um, just how much people, eh, not, I don't know, people, but our government cared more about property than people. And it felt important to me to make a statement about how I was not in line with that line of thinking. 
Well, I think the pandemic also highlighted the systemic racial and, and gender inequality that we see within the industry as well. Everybody went from working 80 to 100 hours a week to not working at all. And you have the opportunity to look around and, and, and see the issues, you know, within your life, within your business, within the industry that, that, you know, in my case, raised me. Let's talk about that for a minute. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I have so many thoughts on that. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about restaurants across the U.S., it's, it's the fastest growing, largest industry. And it is, every year there's sort of a survey done of the 10 lowest paying jobs. Seven of them are in the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry accounts for 45%, so, I'm sorry, 45% of restaurant workers are people of color and a majority of them are women. You know, I think when we talk about these issues that I think as a society we are talking about right now, all of them are very much existent in the restaurant industry. And I think when we talk about things like the subminimum wage, which I work with an organization called One Fair Wage that focuses really heavily on eliminating the subminimum wage, subminimum wage across the country. You know, I think wage justice is racial justice is gender justice. All of these things are very much interlinked. And I think until we really address that and start there, any other work that we do is, is kind of a moot point until, until we address that, that base tipped subminimum wage. But can we unpack that for a minute? Because I, I have questions. So I, I'm, I was born and raised in Southern Louisiana. Um, I made $2 and change an hour when, when I worked there in the industry. And I have friends all across the country, I'm sure you do too, that own and operate their own restaurants. And when I talk to them about what we top line and what we bottom line, they're always shocked because they make so much more money than we do. And, and they do because they're paying their front of house employees $2.13 an hour. And, and they can't even envision a scenario whereby they could pay their team $15 an hour and still stay in business. And so, you know, I, I think about all of these like second order effects, right? The increase in payroll is an increase in payroll taxes. It's an increase in, in workers' comp insurance and, and all of these all of these different things. And, and I'm an advocate for it. And I think I know, I think you know me to be an idealist uh, at my core. But there's also a lot of fear wrapped up in it because it's, I don't, I don't know what that strategy, I don't know what that rollout looks like nationally without, you know, the further decimation of, of the industry because nobody's business model is, is set up outside of, let's say, California, New York, and a couple other major markets. Nobody's infrastructure is set up to absorb that kind of overhead, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that anyone who's paying $2.13 an hour needs to take a serious look inward and think very strongly about the ripple effect of those choices and um, you know what other kind of factors come into play into the need to even pay someone that. and. You know, I would argue that a restaurant probably shouldn't exist if they can't pay their employees a living wage. And, you know, I think that this is probably an unpopular opinion, but pre-pandemic, I was certainly of the mind that there were 
too many restaurants and it creates so many issues, but competition. And I think a lot of the problems in the industry do stem from this, this problem. And a lot of the wage theft and a lot of the the kind of hiding of money and cash transactions and things that that are super rampant in our industry. You know, I, I think if there were fewer of us who did it the right way, it would be possible. And I think that we need to create some standards for what that looks like. And that's true of most industries, but because of this sub-minimum wage, there's sort of this like back exit that folks can kind of go out of to make their business model viable uh, when otherwise it wouldn't be. Who do you look to? Who do you, who do you say, oh, that person's doing it right? That person is an example to look up to in the industry. As far as restaurant owners go? Sure. Um, I think there's lots of folks. You know, I think he's not perfect, but I think Danny Meyer has certainly led the charge on a lot of these really challenging conversations. And I think, um, you know, especially as far as the change that was made to allow tip pooling between front of house and back of house, I don't know that that would have happened if we didn't have this big kind of no tipping conversation back in 2016 and 2017, you know, and then I think kind of looking more globally at the industry and and sort of the systems, you know, again, I kind of do a lot of work with one, one fair wage and uh, Saru Jayaraman is an incredible leader in in this fight for uh, for basically eliminating the subminimum wage. And I think has a really powerful story and message um, in terms of what what the future of this industry should look like and who gets to kind of make the rules moving forward and the lives that we should be building for for our employees. This is a crisis or it's an opportunity. And I feel like whichever way we choose to look at it, that's exactly what it'll be uh, for us in our lives and for us in our businesses. What do you see this this situation as and, and what are you taking away from it? I think that our industry has always been really fragmented. And I think that there has always been this kind of disconnect between independent restaurant owners, either because they don't want to join an association because it feels like it's all kind of corporate restaurants, which it oftentimes is. But I do think that there is this kind of realization, both I think at our level as kind of restaurant operators, but also, and more importantly, at, at the kind of employee and worker level, especially folks who have been thrown off of their health insurance or who haven't been eligible for unemployment because they earned a subminimum wage, to really organize and demand the change that we want to see. And I think it's become really clear in the last six or seven months that change is not coming from the top down. It has to come from the bottom to the top. And I think um, I don't know if I want to say that I'm optimistic, but I am hopeful um, that folks will really rally together to to move this needle and to say, hey, the old way of doing things did not work, does not work, cannot work. Let's change it. And then who do we have that conversation with? Obviously, we need to have it internally. But, you know, after doing the show for six months now, maybe... Maybe I'm so exhausted with, with thinking about all of these things that, that I've oversimplified it in my mind. 
But as an industry, we can have everything we want simply by raising prices. Now, probably not by raising them 10 or 15%, right? Probably 20, 30%, maybe more. Um, but but it, is, it is the great cure-all if we choose to spend the money that, that we're able to raise through price increases responsibly. It is, is that the path forward? Do we need buy-in from patrons on that? Or can, can we collectively decide that we want 401ks, that we want subsidized health care, that we want one fair wage, and, and that we don't want to have to worry about whether we'll stay in business or not? Then we just let the market decide. It's easy for me to say without a restaurant, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love where you're headed with that. I think that the issue really ends up being kind of how sort of patchwork folks are in their thinking. And until some of those things are actually legislated, there's no way to guarantee that everyone will be on board. And I think that is why kind of organizing um, from the bottom to the top is the only way to do it because we need to legislate this action. Otherwise, it's just there's too much of a roll of the dice and a hope that folks are on board and a very strong likelihood that you're going to be off on your little island by yourself doing things the right way while everyone else does whatever the heck they right. want. Well, and that's why, you know, it's and I saw it in Los Angeles uh, when, I, when I first opened my, my bar out there. It was like in, in our area, happy hour was illegal. And I was like, how is this? how is this even humanly possible? You know, as I got older, as I got more mature and, and I, I illegally had happy hour at that bar and then continued to continue to have it at the restaurant and at the fried chicken joint and every happy hour everywhere all the time. Um, because, you know, I, I, I was desperate for the business. I needed the volume to pay the rents, but it, it's, it's a form of protection in the way that you're not discounting your goods to the point where it's impossible to be profitable. Or I guess the flip side of that is that you're forced to price your stuff so low that it's impossible to make a profit. When you think, when you talk about legislation, is that where your head's at? Is it that they legislate the way we do business or is that they legislate the organizational infrastructure of how the business is structured? I think it's more about the the organizational infrastructure and specifically the the labor component and, and how much we pay our employees and how much sick leave we give them and and things that would, you know, depending on your business model, kind of force force those price increases to a certain extent. But you want to, I mean, you want to make sure that you're on kind of a level playing field. And and if, you know, you're not, it also gets into this issue of wage theft a bit. But I think at the very least, you know, comparing a state where they pay $2.13 an hour and no paid sick leave and uh, no vacation and no health insurance. Um, to then compare that menu to another restaurant in a one fair wage state like California is just an impossible exercise. And I think, you know, across the country, menu prices don't vary that much. A little bit, yes. But we're talking about a wage of $2.13 an hour compared with a wage of $15 an hour. There's no burger across the country that one kind of full service restaurant is charging $12 and another full service restaurant is charging $84. It's just right. not how the math ends up extrapolating. Uh, and so I do think it's, it's, it's less about operational oversight and more about ensuring that the bones and the labor behind the organization is well compensated. 
And that needs to be the bare minimum. It, it needs to be a livable wage, at least. When you look back at this moment in time, will you see it as a blessing? Do you think it's made you a better business person? Do you think it's made you a better restaurateur, a better boss? I think I, I think I already see it as a blessing. I mean, as my parents are going to listen to this and they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to kill her. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think that they... I'm sorry, not they. I think that the questions that I've been forced to ask myself, they're not necessarily brand new questions, but there's never been this immediacy in needing to answer them. Um, This, hey, your entire business way of life, the way of life for your employees is on the line and finding a, a sustainable answer to these questions all, all of these things kind of hang in the balance. And so, you know, we, we talk about these times as kind of accelerants. And I think, I hope uh, that they accelerate a lot of the sort of really big infrastructural impactful changes that we've needed to see in our industry for, for decades. Um, and, and my hope is really that, that folks don't just kind of let it be a, uh, difficult moment in time that they kind of get over and, and try to snap back to reality because uh, I don't think that reality exists anymore. It's an industry podcast. And on the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice for the folks listening? Yeah. I mean, I think that if you are one of the lucky few who get to survive this, You have a responsibility to yourself, to your staff, to your industry, to build it back in a way that is not just equitable, but sustainable. And I don't think that's an easy proposition by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think there are resources out there and folks who are really actively willing to help. one Fair Wage has a restaurant sort of association arm that's called High Road Restaurants. Um, we have monthly calls and we do a lot of kind of different training and have resources available in the hopes that that folks will kind of be able to take this path forward. So highroadrestaurants.org is uh, where you can check them out. That's Andrea Abdallah. For more on Barcido, go to barcidola.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.